ladies and gentlemen, I hope you can all hear me. Uh, a very good evening to you. Apologies for the slightly late start, but we had, for the best of reasons, we had a big crowd outside and we didn't want to disappoint anybody. My name is Alastair Fitt and I have the great privilege of being the Vice-Chancellor of Oxford Brookes University and I'm delighted to welcome you all here this evening to a lecture from a renowned guest speaker, the internationally acclaimed architect Daniel Liebeskind. His talk is part of the international seminar series Post-War Commemoration, Reconstruction, Reconciliation, which is a collaboration between Oxford Brookes University and the University of Oxford. And you will see from the slide, the series is funded by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and explores major issues around the theme of war commemoration. Academics from many different fields, politicians, diplomats and others who played a role in peace negotiations and also commemoration events have come together with novelists and poets and artists and musicians whose work has marked war in some way. Together, they're looking at themes such as how war is remembered, who commemoration is for, and its impact um, with regard to reconciliation and promoting future peace. And this series is an example of an important collaborative project which is providing a fantastic opportunity to shine a light on how we commemorate war but also consider what the future of commemoration might be and ways that we can make it better. I'd now like to introduce Matt Gaskin. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the evening's open lecture by Daniel Liebeskind, uh, entitled Architect Articulating History, Architecture and Memory. My name is Matt Gaskin, and I am, uh, have the pleasure of being the head of the School of Architecture here at Oxford Brookes University. Um, I've got to do the menial thing first of just a few housekeeping rules, which is we're not expecting a fire drill, but if we do get a fire, we'll be leaving at, your, at the most convenient exit. So it's actually either those two doors feel like an airline pilot, air, air stewardess now, or the door over here, one that we'll meet out on Harrington Road. <coughs> um, if you have not already done so, can you please switch off your mobile phones? That would be helpful. And we're expecting Daniel's talk to last around about uh, 45 minutes, 50 minutes, and that will leave us probably about 15, 20 minutes for questions. With the questions, we're recording this evening's lecture through our lecture capture system uh, to be viewed online, because we have a, another set of students who the, in another lecture theater that we're live streaming to because of the enormity of the person, which is great. Um, but also, if you want to ask a question, we need you to, to wait until we get the microphone to you at the end. So if you could wait for the mic to come to you, and then you can ask your question. Now I'd like to talk a little bit about Daniel Liebeskind. As all architects are aware, Daniel Liebeskind is an international figure in architecture and urban design. An architect renowned for his ability to evoke cultural memory in buildings of equilibrium-defying contemporaneity. Informed by a deep commitment to music, philosophy and literature, he aims to create architecture that is resonant, original and sustainable. Personally, the chamber works were a huge inspiration to me when I was writing my undergraduate dissertation, which looked to link music and architecture. Not the easiest task to do. Born in Lodz, Poland in 1946, Mr. Liebeskind immigrated to the United States as a teenager and with his family settled in the Bronx. After studying music in New York and Israel, on an American-Israel Cultural Foundation scholarship, he developed into a musical virtuoso before eventually leaving music to study architecture. He received his professional degree in architecture from the Cooper Union for the Advancement of Science and Art in 1970 and a postgraduate degree in the History and Theory of Architecture from the School of Comparative Studies at Essex University in England in 1972. Daniel Liebeskind established his architectural studio in Berlin, Germany in 1989 after winning the competition to build the Jewish Museum in Berlin. In February 2003, Studio Liebeskind moved its headquarters from Berlin to New York when Daniel Liebeskind was selected as the master planner for the World Trade Center redevelopment. 
Dambo Lieberskin's practice is involved in designing and realizing a diverse array of urban, cultural, and commercial projects internationally. The studio has completed buildings that range from museums and concert halls to convention centers, university buildings, hotels, shopping centers, and residential towers. As principal design architect for Studio Lieberskin, Daniel Lieberskin speaks widely on the art of architecture in universities and professional summits. His architecture ideas have been the subject of many, article, uh, many articles and exhibitions, influencing the field of architecture and the development of cities and culture. Mr. Lieberskin lives in New York with his wife, Nina, who is also his business partner. So welcome to you both. Daniel Lieberskin's work is deeply connected to memory. In this talk, he will share his creative process and thinking for many of his most prominent buildings, including the Jewish Museum, Berlin, Military History Museum in Dresden, as well as recent Holocaust memorials in Canada and the Netherlands. We are absolutely delighted to have Daniel Lieberskind here this evening to speak on articulating history, architecture and memory, and thank himself and Nina for giving up their valuable time to be here today. Everyone, please give a warm welcome to Daniel Lieberskind. So it, it's, it's rather different to build a building that, uh, that articulates and shapes memory. First of all, because it's a public, it's a public endeavor. It's a social endeavor. Cannot be done privately. And second of all, unlike a book that can be filed away, a thought that can be put away, a piece of architecture in an urban space persists in being there. It cannot be erased. There is no delete button in architecture. And so the art of architecture is a very complex art because on one hand, it is an art. And as the great Renaissance architects, Michelangelo, Bernini said, architecture is the only art that exists completely in a drawing. You know, you need a drawing to build something. I mean, it's not by taking two by fours and going to the forest. You have to have a plan. Uh, and so it's a strange art public on one hand, but also an expressive art, as we know from history. And if you look into the earliest Western book on architecture, which has come down in a Roman translation from the Greeks, Vitruvius, you'll see that Vitruvius says that origin of architecture is language. So let me uh, say something about building memory, because memories are not only in the past, one has to build memory, which sometimes does not exist or is about to vanish. My first project, I've never built a building before at the Jewish Museum in Berlin, and uh, it did not even start as a Jewish museum. It, the competition was for a, what they called the Erweiterungsbau, a, 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 an addition to Berlin Museum with what they called a small Abteilung, Jewish Abteilung, Jewish department, among many, many other uh, departments of the museum, but I felt that uh, I could not do that, that, that you couldn't departmentalize a history of the Jews or any people. You'd have to really rethink the program thoroughly, and I did rethink it uh, in this emblematic star that I drew across the plan of Berlin, and if you see that white line, uh, that's the Berlin Wall, because I entered the competition in 1989 just before the fall of the wall. But I have to tell you, interesting, as I drew this drawing, I actually felt that the world wasn't there. 
I crossed the wall because when it came to Jews, it didn't, the, the post-war unification of, uh, uh, division of Germany uh, and of Berlin into East and West did not make any sense anyway. And so that's what the project is about. And, you know, it's not really about a piece of real estate. I mean, the building stands on Lindenstrasse, but think about what is it standing on? It's standing on the inaudible voices of those who were active participants of that city. And not all of them were as famous as Albert Einstein or Arnold Schoenberg, citizens who contributed to, to Berlin, to Germany. Many of them took on the name Berlin. Many Jews who came from elsewhere, from Poland and other places, took, took on the name of the city, Berlin. And so I started really with the names, connecting the names to the site, connecting the inaudible to the audible, the invisible to the visible. And there it is, as you would see today, sort of from an angel's view, from an airplane. Uh, you can see that there is a Baroque building, there's a subsequent addition, which I'll share with you in a minute, and there is that, that the building itself, and then there is that tower, the Holocaust Tower, and a garden on the very left. Uh, you'll notice that there is no bridge. There was a competition of about 200 architects around the world, from everywhere. I was the only architect not to put a bridge between the Baroque building and the new building. Because I felt that uh, there is no apparent connection between the Baroque and what happened subsequently. And uh, therefore, I suggested and built a form inside, a kind of a void inside of the Baroque building, which takes you deep into the underground. You enter the building in, through the underground. And uh, that has several reasons. One of the most obvious ones is the darkness of the Enlightenment. You know, Berlin was famous for enlightenment, the great philosophers, Hegel, writers, Lessing, you know, Kierkegaard went to school in Berlin. Uh, the great enlightenment about, you know, humanity, but at the same time, bigotry, antisemitism, hatred were also growing during that enlightenment. And of course, during the Nazi era, I don't know whether you know this, few people do, the subways of Berlin were paved with the stones of Jewish cemeteries. So I thought, yes, that's the entrance. You enter through that darkness. And when you enter, you are confronted by a, a kind of trio, as an overture of, of, of possible entrances. There are three of them. There's one that leads to the Holocaust Tower, another one that leads to the Garden of Exile, and the third one leads to the exhibitions, continuity of the exhibitions. That's the Holocaust Tower. Now, it's not easy to build such a, such a structure for a museum because it's not air-conditioned in the summer, it's not heated in the winter. And of course, since this is a public building, the authorities had to know why, you know, why are they spending money on building this 22-meter-high form that has little to do with a museum. But I thought that it was important to have this particular emptiness and also the void that runs across the entire museum because there's nothing to be displayed there. It's not about showing any objects. It's about connecting yourself to the total abyss created by the murder, not only of six million Jews, but millions of others as a result of that strategy of murder. Uh, by the way, I, I uh, share with you, you know, it's a Holocaust tower. There's nothing in it. It's just the door closes, there's an echo but there is this sharp light, and I have to tell you a little anecdote, because for many years I worked on this project without any light. I thought, you know, this story has no light. The Holocaust is just darkness. There should be no light in it. But when it was under construction, and it was just in time, I read an account of a survivor of the Shoah, later in Brooklyn, speaking to somebody in Brooklyn, saying that when she was shot into the cattle cars, taken to the Stutthof concentration camp, she said, I saw a line of light. She said, I don't know what it was, whether it was the crack in the car through which I looked out, or perhaps I even saw an airplane with a plume of white smoke. But whatever it was, I held on to the light. And I believe that I survived, and she did survive. She was survived that horrifying event. So at the very last minute, I put that short line of light, which doesn't really make it uh, to the bottom of the form, but reflects itself on that sharp, sharp-edged angle that kind of stabs you 
uh, in the eye when you look at it, or maybe even in the heart. The other road leads to, uh, as I said, the Garden of Exile, because first of all, Berlin is exiled. Germany is exiled from itself. It's a different Germany. It's a different Berlin. Berliners are elsewhere also. Berlin is elsewhere. It's in New York, it's in Australia, it's in, in England, it's, it's elsewhere. So I created this rather symbolic garden. It's hard to explain it. It's, it has, it's seven times seven columns. There are seven meter high columns, 49 columns. The central column has the earth of Israel. The 48 have the earth of Berlin. And it's signifying 1948, the creation of the state of Israel. Uh, it's leaning, the whole plane is tilted. So when you're there, it's slightly unnerving because you see the buildings as if you were in a boat. There, there's a feeling of vertigo, definitely, uh, slightly. But uh, you get the sense uh, of moving somewhere else. And then the longest um, is, uh, route is the route to the collections, several floors of the museum, which show the history, 2,000-year-old history of Jews in Germany. Uh, but you notice that in the stair, I didn't put a door at the end. You know, I didn't want to put something like a door, an, a, a, a culmination, an, a, an atrium which you would enter and would say, now we are together. No, no, not at all. There is no redemptive moment in the story. There's no redemption of any sort. You just slowly turn sideways, really, and enter that floor. And those floors are this matrix of, they're not really windows, they're cut through the building that are based on the addresses of Jews and non-Jews. I connected them. You know, famous, you know, Rachel Varnhagen, the woman who created German literary salon that celebrated Goethe and Schiller and created German literature, together with Friedrich Schleiermacher, so-called the veil maker, that's what Schleiermacher means in German, who was a great Protestant theologian living just across that site. So you can see that these cuts are directions towards a city which no longer is there, but it's there, if you're interested. It's still there. You can send a kind of a message, visual connection through the space of the building. And of course, all the windows are tilted in different directions. I think there are more than a thousand windows. None of them are orthogonal. They are, they are tilted across these planes of that star that shines outside of this building. And as I said, the center of the building is, is really the void. It, it's, it's, a, it, it's a space which, which is not a museum space either. It's just an emptiness that connects you across the building with bridges that connect the galleries. And by the way, my idea of this space was based on a piece of music, since I was a musician and I, I do love music. Uh, and I wanted to complete a piece of music that was incomplete by Arnold Schoenberg, Aaron Schoenberg. I don't know whether you know the piece, uh, the opera, Moses and Aaron. Uh, it's seldom performed. It's one of the greatest operas. Uh, he wrote the libretto, he wrote the music for the two first act. The third act, there's nothing. Uh, and it's a conversation between Moses and Aaron and God. And it ends with an aporia at the end of act two, where Moses calls to God and there's a silence. That's how it ends, and he did not complete. He was expelled out of Berlin, exiled, went to Los Angeles, and one of the great inventors of, you know, atonal music, of course. I thought you could complete the opera. The, he couldn't complete it, but I could complete it in the echoes of the footsteps of the visitors. As you go across the void, the footsteps have an echo across these large-scale concrete walls. And that echo is the completion of that conversation which is not completable in, 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 in the 12-tone music. So I was, built, I was able to build this building, which, which uh, is a building that is not huge, but a building that certainly has changed uh, how Berliners view. And it wasn't easy to build, by the way, I have to tell you. Usually winning a competition is, I, I consider, a ticket to oblivion. You know, you can win a competition, means really nothing. How do you get a building built? Uh, and, and for those of you who might not know, the building after I won, the, the unification, right? I started just before unification, then unification, new government, a new world order of Germany, of the Europe, of the world. And of course the government, unanimously, the government, the Senate of Berlin, unanimously voted against the building. 
We don't need it. We have other problems. We've got infrastructure. We got, you know, we, 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 we can't, we don't have time to build history right now. We, we don't have time to think about it. But interestingly enough, after discourse, after, after controversies, uh, and not innocently because Nina, who is my partner, has politics flowing through her blood daily by, by the second, uh, she, she had the strategy of how to create a discourse from, from different aspects uh, of society. And it became a really a huge conversation nationally. Do we need such a building? Do we need a Jewish museum? We never had one. Do we need one? And uh, the Senate reversed its decision. It's very unusual for a for political body to reverse a unanimous vote. And that's why I actually admire Germany. Germany is a very special country because it has instituted a role of responsibility. It, it, unlike Austria or some other countries, and we see rise of fascism in, in Hungary, in Poland, but Germany had determined to deal, as difficult as it is, with the abyss. I was later able to build uh, a place for parties, a place for you know, celebrations, a place for music. You know, that was not called in the first program. And then across the street, recently I was able to build the educational academy. And by the way, you know, it's an interior of the old flower market with these large forms that they have spaces for auditoriums and libraries and so on. But I was able to put, actually they allowed me, my favorite quote of Moses Maimonides. Do you know that name? He's a philosopher, Jewish philosopher, thousand years ago, who wrote in Arabic and Judeo-Arabic, you know, in Cairo, in, in, in that region, uh, Morocco. And, and he's a great thinker. He said, uh, hear the truth, whoever speaks it. And I put it in Arabic, and Judeo-Arabic, and in German, and English. By the way, the neighborhood of Kreuzberg, where the building is standing, is a neighborhood of immigrants. Not Jews, don't live there, nobody. You know, it's immigrants, Turks, and people from Syria, and yeah. So the, the issue of history is not something irreversible in the past. It's what happens in the future. How do we see the world developing? How do we see something urgent that is facing us politically, socially, and how do we react to it? I had another chance to build something which is very different. It's a small museum in a small town in Germany. I won a competition. I call it Hunted. That's his number, 26 to 84. I don't know whether you ever came across this painter, but if not, you should look him up. Felix Nussbaum. He was a famous painter in the 30s, 20s in Germany. Very successful. He was a Jew. In 1933, his life changed. He was on the fellowship in Rome. Uh, Goebbels personally took away his scholarship. He became a refugee who escaped, hunted by the Gestapo, the SS. He somehow made it to St. Sir uh, deportation camp in France, finally made it uh, to Belgium, to Brussels, with his wife, who was also a painter, uh, and, and continued to paint the story of his life what was going on in the world. Uh, and that's a self-portrait with identity card. You can see it, the, those, those grim walls. You can see the, the identity card. And you can see the abysmal look in his eyes, the fear and the, the I, as he said, if anybody finds my paintings, treat them like messages thrown, put into a bottle and thrown to the ocean of history. If you find it, read it. You might uh, get something that is important for you. So I was able to uh, win this competition. And by the way, when I started this competition, which was in the 90s, early 90s, Felix Nussbaum was not mentioned in the 15-volume Jewish Encyclopedia. Think about it. How much, how much do we not know about the Holocaust? How many people are just lost? We don't know who they are. We don't know what they achieved. We don't know what they contributed. So that's an emblematic story of, of a painter. It's a small building, very low budget, in Osnabrück, which is near the Dutch border. And you, you can see that it's attached to this uh, Kunsthistorische Museum. It's, it's a museum of history. By the way, this is the area where the oldest German traces of Germany are found. This is the ger oldest German coins. This is the heart of Germany. And 
non-innocent because it was actually the first place where the Nazi party was recognized uh, and tolerated by the church. So it's an important moment. But you can see the building. It's a strange building. It's, it's, it has fragments, simple sort of fragments that collide, and they represent different directions of his life. And I call it in, in German, Museum ohne Ausgang, a museum without an exit. There's no exit out of his life. You know, you go from Berlin to Rome, to, to Berlin again, then you go to, to Brussels, to Auschwitz. There's no exit. And it's really designed as a museum without an exit, uh, truly. Uh, the front of it is, it's just a blank canvas behind that historical museum. It's the largest unpaintable picture. And, and you see it here, there's the historical <coughs> museum. And there is the new, new, newly completed bridge uh, that leads you to the museum. By the way, as I was excavating uh, for this building, they discovered a old bridge beneath this bridge, which was built during the Swedish occupation of Osnabrück. Uh, how interesting. The history echoes itself even in architectural programs. Who would have known that a bridge below a bridge would be discovered? And the building is has th really very simple. Uh, it's three different materials. You know, the wood, the, the work before 1933, romantic, German, uh, the concrete volume, the Holocaust itself. What did he do during that period from 1933? He was actually on the last deportation train to Auschwitz. He didn't make it. He, he thought he would make it. He, he did not make it with his wife. And uh, the, the metallic form, which is a connecting across to the old building, which I called the Bridge of Hope. Here is the a sample of sort of the museum, some of the museum uh, with his paintings. Notice on the left the painting of his bar mitzvah, uh, just on the site, which is pointed by that wooden volume, Rollenstrasse uh, Synagogue, which was of course burned, burned during Kristallnacht paintings. It's a, it's a, it's. You know, I often thought when you built a large museum to a large catastrophe, you know, worldwide, whether it's Ground Zero, the Shoah. It's almost impossible to understand. We cannot understand the numbers. We don't understand millions. We don't understand that. We, we cannot relate to it. By the way, that's why there is Holocaust denials, deniers. It, it's not possible to, to fathom. And by the way, my aunt, because my parents were both survivors, uh, my father's only su surviving sister, he once counted 80 members of our family, immediate family, uh, who were murdered. Uh, it, my aunt wrote him a letter in 1945 after being released from Auschwitz in Yiddish, which said, she described what happened to her, what happened to her, and she lost her children, her husband were killed. She said, nobody will believe us. In the future, if you read this, who will ever believe that you, we were taken to the showers with a piece of soap and we were gassed? So there it is, Felix Nussbaum, painting in his attic in Brussels, an uh, uh, interesting photograph. And I created in the center that concrete form, which is, I called it the Nussbaum walk. Uh, I created the narrowest space that I can do under German regulations. Because I didn't want people to be able to step away and look at the paintings just aesthetically. I want them to be as close as Nussbaum was to these paintings, uh, where, you know, it's just 90 centimeters. That's, that's all it is. Maybe a little wider. It's I think for two wheelchairs to be able to cross each other, but it's interesting to to see this work and and get a sense of of what it is to be in this in this no exit world because there is no exit. It's a loop, uh, and and you can see by the way uh, uh, this bridge building, the Nussbaum of the future. I called it, and when I designed it, people said, "What kind of idea is this?" There is no future Nussbaum. We already have all the paintings. We know all the, all the paintings. We, there's nothing more that will be known about Nussbaum. But as a result of building the building, two collections, one from Tel Aviv, one from New York, were given back to the museum where Nussbaum's signature was erased in the paintings. And so that's something amazing that there is, through construction, you can shape responses and you can discover things that would never be otherwise known. You can see the collision of the old and new. By the way, in, in the old museum, if you go there, it's very interesting. It's got the old, the, the most original Durers, the, all the etchings, all the original etchings. You can see the bridge. And then on the left, you can see I was able to construct very recently, because again, just like in Berlin, originally there was no cafe, there was no need for it, there was no bookstore, you know, just a museum. 
But as, as, as the audiences develop, people are interested uh, in, in Osnabrück to come to this museum, and others come there as well. They needed other facilities, so I created a new building that has those facilities. And I like this photograph, there's these broken windows that, I, you know, that are part of my... And on the other side, they reflect the gates of Osnabrück, of the, the historical gates of the city. This is the city, by the way, where the Treaty of Westphalia was signed. This is an important, one of the important German centers of culture and political power. And so that's really the story of that building, mitzvah, which in Hebrew means the good deed. Now the Jews in the Talmud and in its sacred book have believed that there is such a thing as the good deed. And when I designed the Danish Jewish Museum, uh, I thought it's a mitzvah because the, the, the Danish Jews were by and large saved. By the way, they were saved because of a German military attaché, not because of Danes. The German military attaché in Copenhagen got a message that the Jews the next day were going to be you know, deported and, and murdered. And he called somebody in Denmark. And they organized a shipment of all the Jews out of Denmark to Sweden on small boats. They organized it amazing, amazing. I, I, unfortunately, those who were not Danish did not survive. There were other Jews there. But the building is in the old library, royal library, and that library used to be in the underground, uh, the place where ships of King Christian IV were stored. So storage of ships, royal library, then the royal library moved out, and I received a space where I could tell that story uh, of survival, of the mitzvah, of the good deed of the Danes to be able to organize and, and, and save people who were doomed to death. Uh, so here is a kind of emblem of the mitzvah. It's, 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 it's a kind of interlocking system of, of, of forms. And I showed this in a model because it will har hard to show it in, in when I show you the picture of the buildings. It's very small, but I tried to create a feeling of being on a small boat with a horizon line, which is really perfectly level, but the building around you is a kind of labyrinth from which you don't really know where you're going, except at the end there is light. And uh, you can see it here. It's a wooden construction. Uh, you can see there are the brick, uh, brick vaults of the space. There are vitrines for telling the interesting story of, of people. There's the light that, that is part of it. Uh, there, is, there is a sense of instability in it as well, because you know, there's the, the ramping effect, and there, there, are, there are the beautiful stories. I mean, did I know that both Tuborg and Carlsberg beer were both founded by, as Jewish companies? No, who would have known? So there it is, just a museum with a very small door. It stands across from the parliament buildings. You know, of course, the Royal Library was across the parliament, the little park. In the center is the statue of Kierkegaard, who wrote that famous book, Either Or, very appropriate, and a small place to sit, small place to visit. Modest, but many people really, really like it, and I do too. Uh, survival, a very different project in Canada, in Ottawa. What, how, how does a country that was part of the Allied powers uh, respond 70 years later? Quite late, I think Canada was the last allied country not to have a national memorial. And I took the star, not because it's a star, but because the star's six spaces are dedicated not only to Jews, but also to the Roma, the Sinti, homosexuals, political prisoners, uh, people who are mentally and physically unwell. Those are all murdered as part of the typology which the star contained. And I don't have time to show it to you, but if you go to the origin of the star, where did it come? Why did the Germans use it? They used it as a typology. They used the triangles of different colors and for the Jews the double triangle. And they had a very, very, you know, it's a massive typology of how the Nazis used the star. So this is a public space. This is uh, in the middle of a beautiful capital of, of Ottawa. 
and of course it is dealing with survival. It's dealing with those Im immigrants who came to Canada uh, in, in the thousands after these terrible events. And it's surrounded by a growing neighborhood, very close to the parliament buildings, uh, made purely in concrete. The landscape sort of ascends, the ground plane uh, slightly goes down. You're surrounded by cars on one side, but you're a little below, so the, the sound is different. Uh, you have a kind of tundra-like landscape that, that grows, little green, green things come through the rock. And uh, it's, it's a place to meditate, to come, to meet somebody. Uh, to and, and by the way, I worked with Ed Bertinsky, one of the great uh, artists, photographers uh, today. I mean, one of the best. He created, he went to the sites of murder today, yesterday, and took photographs of what do they look like today? Because we know those sites from 1945, 1948, but what do they look like today? Look at that site, the path, the trees. It, it's, so it's a very interesting, so there are large scale murals here, and uh, there are murals of a number of places that, that, that orient you towards, towards where you are. There is one meditational space, which is not really enclosed because there's no roof. It's even more disturbing to be in an enclosure when there is no roof. Actually, it's, it's, it's the roof that makes a house. You might not have a wall, but as long as you have a roof. But without a roof, you really have only kind of the remembrance, the flame of remembrance. And you have the sense of, I wanted to frame the skies. And not arbitrarily, because that's the burial. That's the ashes. That, that's, nobody was buried anywhere. It's in the air. It's, it's just, look at, the, look at the air, look at the sky. Uh, and you can see the staircase, and I framed it very particularly, the Peace Tower of the Canadian House of Commons. And my idea was simple. So you ascend and you're in another plane. You can see the headquarters of the government, symbolic and, and real, because when you think about it, Shoah, murders, crimes, genocides, don't happen just because hooligans are, are on the streets with knives and guns. They happen because of the decisions of government to deprive people of human rights. So government is an incredibly important aspect of understanding wide-scale crimes. And so as you ascend to that tower, you, you look, you think a little bit, that you are in a, in a, in a place that's of peace, of tranquility. But as the Prime Minister Trudeau of Canada said, it wasn't always so. The ship St. Louis, to which I also did an interesting intervention, uh, was turned away. It's a ship of refugees, German Jews, who went to Cuba, to Venezuela. They were turned away, turned away. They went to New York, turned away. They went to um, Halifax, turned away, and they all perished. So there is a new awareness, the role of government, names. A project that uh, I hope will start construction soon uh, in Holland. The Zacher, to memory in Hebrew. And I use the Hebrew letters not arbitrarily because Hebrew letters are not representative letters. They are unlike Latin letters or Greek letters because they symbolically are within themselves. They are sacred because of that. And as you know, uh, the Jews have kept the letters and the writing the same as it was thousands of years ago. I mean, I can read a Hebrew text written 3,000 years ago. I think it's not possible almost in any other language to read perfectly the text because it has been maintained in this sense. So to memory, I call it, a kind of hovering of memory. And we know this Dutch symbol, this universal European symbol, and this photograph, which I found recently, Albrecht's Durerstraat in Amsterdam, it's a book from secret, secret photography, 19, during, during the Shoah. Take a look, a secret camera captures an everyday scene. A group of Jews being marched, there's a man with a gun in front, if you go with a magnifying glass. Maybe a German Wehrmacht officer, who, I don't know, maybe a Dutch collaborator. A group of people are being really sent to their death. You can see them walking on a spring day. And you can see people on the street walking calmly as if nothing has happened. That's an incredible photograph, I think. More horrifying than seeing uh, uh, you know, the skulls and, 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 the, and the destroyed bodies. Horrifying 
because it's every day. It's an everyday photograph, just secretly captured. How amazing that, and how do these things happen? How can they happen? How can these people walk calmly to wherever they're going while they see and they understand what the march on the street is? So again, I used uh, that amazing book. It's a, it's a, it's, look, if you, if you have ever read The Spiritual Exercises of Loyola, uh, modernize it. Go one step further than Loyola. Read this, these books, which contain only the names. There's nothing more known, just a date of birth, age, a, an infant, a child, an old, old woman, an old man. So I use this, and also place of, of presumed death, Rotterdam, Auschwitz, Amsterdam. Uh, so these are the letters. The letters are hovering over these brick walls. They are on the main street of, in a beautiful city of Amsterdam, at the old, near the old Portuguese synagogue. And my idea was to put every name, there are 102,000 names of Jews and Gypsies, Roma and Sinti, in that book. And I used the brick because, for two reasons. Number one, it's a typical material of, of, of Holland. That's how buildings are built, by the bricks. But I engraved on each brick a name, the date, and the disappearance. And I thought, it's participatory. Because you can buy a brick. I think it's 50 euro to buy a brick. But also you can adapt a brick. You can look at a brick. You can pick out a name. And you can go on a you know, computer database and find out. And try to find out who is this person. Who's now, can we, uh, can we deal with 102,000 names? No. And in fact, I even put, put a wall of 1,000 bricks which are empty. Of those we don't know and others who might be discovered as a result of reading a name. So that's the mirror, mirror-like steel letters that are sharp and turned, resting on the brick foundations, but turned in a different direction and reflective. They, they reflect the environment. So as you walk on the street, it's slightly higher level, you just see the mirroring of the street in light because the letters are complex geometrically. And then as you go slightly below, you enter, and, and it's in a beautiful site where the Hoftoin, the Hermitage Museum, uh, it's, it's a busy, beautiful Amsterdam neighborhood. Okay, let's uh, go to the next topic, war, because we are in the midst of wars. We are. We may not be aware of it, but not just wars, military conflicts, which are not only brewing, but are killing people, but we also war against uh, the Earth, we might be, as many scientists believe, in a losing part of it, that, that we will become extinct very soon because we have misjudged our, by hubris, our power over the earth. So it's a war, it's a total war. And I had a chance to build a museum, the largest museum in Germany, uh, the, the, the Military History Museum in Dresden. You know that Dresden was considered the Venice of the North, you can see it in this painting. It's one of the most beautiful cities. And you know perhaps this picture of Dresden in 1945, completely, th there's nothing left. The bombings of the Allies, th there's nothing left in, in the city. It's just a level, hollow ground. And there's the building. The armory, built in the 19th century, which soon became a museum, the Saxon Museum, uh, then of course the Nazi Museum for many years, then it was the Soviet Museum for many years, then it was the East German Museum for many years, and then, of course, after the turns of history, Germany, West Germany, East Germany come together. What shall we do with this museum? Well, that was my idea. I took the armory, which is that U-shape, and I introduced a vector. The vector represents, first of all, where the first bomb fell on, on, on Dresden in 13th, 15th February 1945 by the Allies, and the triangulation, the two other points which are necessary in the airplanes in order to bomb the city precisely. So the, the museum itself is a self-similar piece of geometry to the destruction of the city, but also a way to look at the city beyond what that triangle represents. So here it is the armory. You can see that it's very large. And you see that, that vector through it. And it, it's, it tilted, as you see, in a certain direction towards the football field, which is just beyond it. 
uh, and it penetrates the outer walls of the museum, and it cuts the chronology. The chronology is large because it's from 12th century. Teutonic Knights, that's the first exhibit. Can you believe it? Teutonic Knights goes all the way to German soldiers in NATO, in Afghanistan today. But it cuts that chronology exactly between 1914 and 1945, the militaristic years, uh, disastrous years that brought murder to the world uh, at a scale never seen before. So uh, you can see I incorporated a stair, I incorporated many objects, and I res restored the building, which, which is a classical building, not well treated by East German architects. It was, so I brought it back to its, its, its authentic state. And I, I show it that it's not a facade of a building, but that the whole form of this vector cuts out the building and provides a totally different space with a totally different program. So in the old building, in the armor, you can see Napoleonic Wars, you can see uh, historical things. Then you have the cut. I cut through all the columns, remove all the columns, and create a totally different space. And it's a space of questions. Uh, it's not a space of, of more military history. Just questions and emblematic objects are there. Because the questions that are asked are the following. Questions that have no answer, by the way. Why do people follow totalitarian leaders? Why do they march when they're told to march? Why do they kill on order to kill? Questions that nobody can answer. But as you know, perhaps I built the Imperial War Museum North, which I'm not showing tonight, uh, which also has to do with conflicts and how to navigate conflicts into the future. So that's, and by the way, the, the running text here in the exhibition is very interesting. It's uh, von Clausewitz, a uh, Prussian uh, philosopher who wrote a book on war. And it's a chilling book. I think every, every general in the United States and everywhere else in England has, has read it or has, is studying it. Because Clausewitz says very simply that peace is just another way of fighting a war. Uh, he created that idea. It's a terrifying idea. Peace is just a suspension of war, in other in fighting over war in, in other terms. Terrifying. You enter the staircases. Uh, there's an exhibition on animals. Now, who would have known? We know the, uh, the lions of Judah. We know the uh, elephants of Hannibal. But we don't think of Laika, the dog, first dog sent into space. We don't think of anthrax. We don't think of biological warfare. We don't think of to what extent nature has been subsumed into the human violence around us. And it is chilling to learn something like that. Toys of children, so innocent, so nice looking, looking at that ancient staircase. Uh, the emblematic alouette, and another French reference to, to the natural world, uh, that helicopter, uh, shown in a way that is disturbing. Uh, the things that come from the sky, the rockets, uh, and upstairs, as you go upwards through the levels, you reach what they call the Dresden Blick, the Dresden View. And Dresden View, it's a fantastic view because you see the rebuilt city of Dresden completely, you know, Frauenkirche, all the fantastic Baroque buildings rebuilt. But you are also in this matrix of the past at the same time. And by the way, the, the, what is shown here is cities bombed from Dresden. Rotterdam was bombed from Dresden. Uh, Coventry. Vielitschka in Poland. So that's really the experience. And then you, you leave outside of the museum. You, you, you take a walk outside into this edge, suspended, you know, very high in the wind. You know, it's open, it's not glass. And I really wanted to do it. I wanted to feature the human being in front of the museum because Germany is a democracy. It should not be the building which is you know, has the military history, is the people in front of it who are responsible for that, for that military. And so there is a feeling that you're suspended in this space with a view of rebuilt Dresden, with the knowledge that you're looking towards the first bomb and you're standing in the triangulation of the airplane. And yes, it's, it's certainly something that has changed the nature of this particular institution. It's like the West Point in the United States, it's where German soldiers come to learn about history of warfare. It's run by the military, just like the Imperial War Museum North. Uh, and it's a very interesting, it, it's, it's just astonishing how much of that history, and I learned it when I was doing uh, my project in Manchester, how much art has been produced 
as a result of violence and war. Almost all of it. it you know, ancient and modern. Okay, hope. There must be hope. I was able to, uh, to, to design, but not yet built, a museum in an Islamic country, in Iraqi Kurdistan. We know the war of ISIS. We know the pressure on the Kurdish people. Uh, we know the unhappy story that the Kurds have not succeeded. And yet the Kurds want to assert their identity. And in the city of Erbil, which is one of the oldest, perhaps, inhabited cities, maybe older than Jerusalem or Jericho, with this citadel. And uh, my project here is Gwyn, Gwyn Roberts, who is a fantastic filmmaker, writer, who's uh, gathered many, over many years, uh, oral histories of the Kurds. I'm sitting here in Erbil, overlooking the site on the citadel. This was my idea. Where, where, where is Kurdish language spoken? Where is Kurdish music played? It's played in Russia, in Turkey, in Syria, in Iran, and in Iraq. So I brought all those things, and I created a new topographical map brought out of these fragments with a central courtyard in the <coughs> building. And I have to tell you, when I showed this project to the Kurds, they said, yes, we know it. But please don't tell anybody. <laughs> because we are oppressed in all those, as everywhere, e even in Iraq. But later on, about a year later, they said, you know, you're right. We should not hide it. It's true. We were promised a nation, you know, in the League of Nations. Woodrow Wilson promised, promised a nation to the Kurds. Unfortunately, it never happened. So here's the building. You can see the sense of, of sort of also relationship to, to the local architecture. You can see also this uh, radical form, which is, uh, represents the Anfal. You know, the Anfal was the systematic genocide against the Kurds by Saddam Hussein. He decided to kill all the Kurds. I mean, it was just like the Jews in the Holocaust, just pick out a people and murder all of them. He didn't quite succeed, but he killed thousands of people. And I traveled to the villages around Kurdistan to speak to those people, elder women who lost their husbands, uh, uh, kids without parents, and so on. And the story was so familiar to me from my own background. So there is a, there is a space with water, with echoes, with light, uh, that leads you to that central courtyard and, of course, celebrates Kurdish history, Kurdish uh, art, Kurdish crafts, uh, and part of the building rises upwards towards the citadel, at the end of which is a garden, the flame. No, it's they, they had celebrated the flame of freedom, the Kurds, that's their symbol. And you can see it here. Uh, unfortunately, the Kurds had a referendum. 96, 97% voted to establish that we are Kurds, we, we, we have an identity. And when they did that, the whole world, except for one country, actually, except for Israel, said, we agree, the Kurds are, no, are, are nobody. They are not a people. It's a sad story. They lost that fight for now. But uh, I've learned, I've met many Kurds, I've been there uh, many times. The Kurds are indomitable. You can't kill them. You can't squash them. By the way, they were the greatest allies of the United States and the Allied powers in the war against ISIS. And what happened? Now the Turks are trying to kill the Kurds in Syria. So it's, it's a story of hope. It's a story of, of possibilities. And then I go to rebirth. That's my last project, so I won't be too much here. Uh, it's the most difficult project and the longest one that I've been involved in. The rebuilding of Ground Zero as a master planner. And uh, you know, everybody knows where they, where, where they were on 9-11. It's one of those moments that changed the world. I, I'm often asked when I was, and it's so strange. After 12 years of living in Germany, working on the Jewish Museum, September 11, 2001, was the day that the Jewish Museum was to open to the public. That was the day. After all those years, that was the date. And uh, I went to the studio that day, I told Nina and my colleagues, this is fantastic. The first day I don't have to think about history 
at all because people can enter the museum. They can make their own judgment. They can, they can have an experience themselves. And of course, by about 2.30 afternoon, Berlin time, we saw the images of the attack on New York, terrorist attack, and the museum announced that it will not open. And it did not open for the next three days. There's something about dates, something about anniversaries, something about the cycle of repetition. So I did win the competition, and that's one of my drawings, which has many ideas. Number one was not to build where people perished. Nobody said it, you should not do it. All my colleagues and architects proposed to build large-scale buildings where the buildings stood once. But I thought you could not build. It's kind of, nobody said it was sacred, but it is sacred because you cannot build where people died. Uh, so I put the buildings really on an emblematic sort of torch of liberty uh, sense, as you see it's the large skyscrapers around the site. Uh, footprints uh, with the waterfalls, 1776, symbolic height of a tower, Declaration of Independence, which after all is a document of human rights, maybe one of the first, and the bedrock, going all the way down to the bedrock. Uh, I show this, and I always preface that it's not out of vanity, but you know, there are so many stakeholders in this, in this project. It's not one client. You've got the families of the victims and the thousands of people, people who have lost their loved ones. You've got the Port Authority, which has 7,000 architects and engineers in New York, that is uh, directed by the two most powerful governors, governor of New York and governor of New Jersey, are in charge of the Port Authority. Port Authority owns the land and leases it to developers and their own private architects. And then you have the path trains that run under the site, you've got the subways. So you can see that it's a project that demands consensus because people have very different views what to do with this uh, large-scale rebuilding, which uh, requires 10 million square feet of office space. 10 million square feet of office space. It's a major city in itself. Five million square feet of infrastructure and, and cultural facilities and, and streets and so on. By the way, mayor of New York is in charge of the streets, not the governors. The mayor has, uh, the municipality has control of what happens on the streets. So, you, you know, it's layers. And I always, always remember this. Some people said to me, Mr. Libeskin, don't you get sick and tired of this? Wouldn't you like to be working in China where somebody would say, we're doing this and there's no more arguments? No, I wouldn't because I, I'm a believer in democracy. Democracy is difficult. You have to make compromises, you have to fight for what you believe, but as Churchill said, it is the best of all the worst possible systems. <laughs> so here's my sketch. Uh, here is a really up-to-date uh, rendering. I'll show you photographs. That is pretty close because, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult over so many years to create a project that has a cohesion, that has a harmony, and I show you this only as a diagram for those who are architects, that it's really what you see up uh, on, on over the ground is almost nothing. The biggest job is the 75 feet, 80 feet underground, because you have to build all that before you can see a single building emerging. And that's a strategic decision, because once you lay the foundations, everything is determined. Uh, and of course, the trains are running. You have to provide for transportation, for mobility, for high-level infrastructure. So the visitor center, which you, which you come to, and you might remember this wall, and, and I have to tell you this little anecdote, because I was with the architects, uh, the seven finalists, in a tall building overlooking the site, when one engineer of the Port Authority said, does anybody want to go down to the site? And it was a miserable gray day with a lot of rain, sleet, and every architect said, no, no, it's much easier, much better, to, we can see the site perfectly from here, from the safe windows of, of a skyscraper. But Nina and I decided we want to go down. And really, as you go down this ramp, as you descend, you, you change, your life changes. You, you touch life and death. And I remember touching this wall, and the engineer said, that's a slurry wall. Now, I studied architecture, but I wasn't actually certain what a slurry wall is. It's a dam. You know, on the, on the beyond it, on the left side, is the Hudson River, the pressure of, of the Atlantic Ocean. And this is a foundation for the site, but it's also a, a dam, a gigantic dam. Had this wall collapsed, of course, all the subways would have been flooded, would have been truly apocalyptic. So I preserved this wall. It was not easy. I, 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 you know, usually you see foundations when they're dead. You know, you see them in Rome, you see them in Athens, you see them in Jerusalem. 
when buildings have no longer a reality. You can see the foundations. Buildings that are real, you can never see their foundations because they're supporting something. So how do you still support something and expose the foundation? I think it's the only living foundation that has ever been exposed. And I had a good fortune to work with engineers at the Port Authority who liked the idea to, to, to you know, it's hard to do it structurally, to expose it, because you can see that, that, that sense of what people can do, what, what they can do in, in a community. And I was very touched when Pope Francis came to New York not long ago to give his ecumenical address you know, to all religions. He, I always thought you know, he could choose Central Park, St. Patrick's Cathedral, you know, Times Square, but he chose to deliver his message at this wall. And that's what this wall is. It's part of the museum of that day, part of a new sense of a new world, world order. The world is completely changed after that time. And of course, the, the, the waterfalls, very important part of my master plan, to bring, uh, to bring si uh, silence through the water, the, the falls of water. And Michael Aratsky incorporated that idea, but it's very important. And there are, of course, names uh, on the edges of, uh, of, the, of the waterfalls. And what is important is that the waterfalls are not shallow. Originally, in the competition, they thought the waterfalls were just, just you know, just those footprints of the building. But I wanted the waterfalls to go all the way to the bedrock, which is the museum itself. And you can see them here, going all the way to the bedrock, this, this slurry wall. And you can read the names. It's, it's, it's even in a busy, you know, downtown of New York, which, which is very noisy. You can have a sense that this is a public space. It's a little different from other public spaces. It has a different aura, but it's also beautiful. You get beautiful... Uh, you can see, you know, green, you can see nature, you can see the water of nature as well. And you can see the... Ah, I introduced a second uh, uh, unwanted public space. You know, there's never too much space, public space in the world. You need a space to hang out to be... So I introduced what I call the wedge of light, a space that is defined by 8.46 a.m. when the first tower was struck and 10.28 when the second tower collapsed. And you can see it here. You can see it in the in the central oculus of the path terminal, which is already built, but you don't see it on the, on the right side because tower number two has not yet been built, but you see the foundation. So it's a space in light. And, and by the way, this Sept last September 11th, that oculus opened. It opens completely. All the skylight just opened to the air, and you see the light coming in, and you get a sense of something very peculiar, of, of, of the light of the sun, of, even on a day which will not be sunny, as this one was, you get a sense of orientation that is more than just the city around you. And here it is, you can see 16 acres, about 8 acres are public space. That's, that's hard to do when you have so many bu big buildings to be built. Uh, and a sense of the past and of the future. And by the way, I have to tell you this little story. I always thought about my parents when I was doing this design. They're no longer alive, but they were, my parents worked in factories. You know, they, they worked in grim, grim conditions. It's hard, uh, you know, to work in, in, in factories. Uh, and I thought, what do people like that? Like, my, what would they get at Ground Zero? They would never be in the skyscrapers, which are for media companies, Time Magazine, uh, you know, uh, Warner, Time Warner, uh, big, media companies. They would never be there in those lobbies of those skyscrapers. Where would they be? They'd be in the subways. They'd be on the streets. They'd be running to feed their families. What do I give them? Well, that's what I can give them. That, that space, that wonder of, of the beauty of New York. Horizons which are open, not closed. And also a skyline that affirms what the city is. You can see it's very close. Tower 2 is missing. In that, in that profile. Uh, and I end here where I began, because you know, I was an immigrant to New York. I come from Poland. And uh, despite what we see in America today, anti-immigrant, uh, anti-immigrants, anti-racism, a government that, that does not respect human rights, a government that <coughs> is interested only in money, Despite that, I do believe, and, and, and I was, you know, I, I, I was woken up by my mother, my sister and I, on, we came by ship, one of the last ships 
Later people came by planes because it was cheaper. Look, you're going to see New York City. You're going to see the skyline. And you stand on the ship and you look at the skyline and it's something uh, unbelievable when you come by ship as an immigrant. Uh, that skyline is kind of impossible. Fata Morgana, you can't believe it. You'd, you don't have any relationship to the dreams that made it so. And I did not know at that time that the Statue of Liberty has the poem by, uh, by Emma Lazarus. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. And that's what America really is. It's about freedom. It's about justice. It's not about what we see today. Thank you.